Uh, thank you for inviting me to your uh, retreat. Uh, I really appreciate you letting me do this by Zoom. Uh, I find it, it's a new protection because people can't throw anything at me and actually hit me. And that's, that's a, a welcome change for me. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Um, and I, I love the topic that, we're, that I'm talking about tonight. Uh, I woke up one morning and um, asking God what I should do in my quiet time. I have a normal routine, but I had kind of finished a cycle. And he made it very clear he wanted me to, to uh, just study the supremacy of Christ. So I did that for about three months as part of my quiet time. And if I have a thought, I'd write it down. And if I had a thought, I'd write it down. And it eventually evolved into the presentation that I'm going to give you uh, today. So, um, and uh, my, my particular practice is to go through my talk and um, uh, take questions at the end. Now, I am going to be giving you, and I apologize for this, a ton of information in scripture. There is no way you will be able, if you were a stenographer, you would be able to keep up with me and get it all down. You're not going to be able to do that. But uh, I am going to give my notes to Trevor. And if anyone, and I won't do it today, but I'll do it like Monday or Tuesday. If anybody wants the notes, all he has to do is uh, contact Trevor, who will have the notes, and he will send them to you. And my notes are, are very detailed. But it's good to take down notes just as something strikes you that you think you want to meditate on, or it's a new thought, or you want questions about it. I encourage you to do that. But I want to free you from that burden of thinking you got to write everything down. You won't be able to, but I provided relief. Um, so with that, uh, let's pray together. Father, you are the most uh, glorious God. You are the creator who is uncreated. You are cause and everything else is effect. You alone are autonomous and self-sufficient, self-sustaining, eternal and unchanging. We all derive from you. The entire universe is your creation. And you created us not out of need, but out of love. And then having created us, you did not abandon us to our foolishness and then watch with a capricious eye as we destroy ourselves and destroy our planet. Rather, with great mercy, you have looked upon our condition and your only begotten son agreed to enter the womb of a young Hebrew woman so that he could come and live among us and live the right life in our place, the life we should live but don't, and die the death we should die but don't. Such a glorious plan to save us. We give you all praise and glory for doing what we could never do and never conceive of. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
right. So um, uh, I'm going to start off um, reading uh, from Matthew 16 at verse 13. This is a passage with which many of you are familiar. Oh, Trevor, what is my stop time? Uh, 8.45, okay, thank you. Great, all right. So when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon, Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Jesus' question to Peter is the key question for every human being, the answer to which determines, and how a man decides this question determines his eternity. That's how important it is. The wonderful Ravi Zacharias, the East Indian apologist who lived most of his life in Canada, tells the story of a radical Hindi who came to Christ. Someone asked him when he was speaking somewhere, well, what did you find in, in Christianity that you didn't find in Hinduism? And his answer was, I found Christ. And the man said, no, 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 I understand that, I understand that. But what do you have now that you didn't have before as a Hindi? And he said, I have Christ. Gentlemen, this is the key to life. This is not an academic issue. It's not a political issue. It's not a social issue. It is a life and death issue. So I'm going to go through some different parts of the Bible or different themes about, the, about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah that uh, the Hebrews sought. Um, he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He has a divine duality, which no one else has ever done and will ever do. He is both very God and very man. He is not a reduced God or a partial God. He is God. He is also fully man. So let's look at uh, Jesus, the Messiah that the Hebrews sought. First, in Isaiah 7, this famous verse that is always read at Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now, by the way, this is a note. This is the only time, as I recall in the Bible, where God says, I will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
and shall call Henuel, which you know means God with us. He was born in Bethlehem, as the scriptures predicted. I'm reading now from Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. He would be called a Nazarene. And it says in Matthew 2, verse 23, that Jesus came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he, meaning Messiah, shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there are special messianic spiritual characteristics. I want to go over some of those with you. Uh, we knew that the Jews were always demanding that Jesus give them a sign of his Messiahship. The Talmud is the source from which the code of Jewish law is derived. It is made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is the original written version of the oral law, and the Gemara is the record of the rabbinic discussions concerning the Mishnah. Uh, the Gemara includes their debates between themselves, including their differences in their views of certain scriptures. Uh, so you and I have a very different system. We have the Bible, and then we have commentaries that elucidate the Bible. In the Jewish community, the Bible to them is simply the Old Testament. They rarely read the Old Testament. What they read is the, uh, is the Gemara. They read the, the various rabbis' debates about what a particular passage means. So as a result, they may not have any sense of the historical flow of the Old Testament. They may be ignorant of many of the books of the Old Testament because if a verse, a chapter, a book was not part of the discussion between various rabbis, and this is not all rabbis, these are the, the most revered and hallowed rabbis. But if they didn't discuss something, it's not known. Uh, for example, Isaiah 53, which is the great chapter announcing the, uh, the uh, sacrificial life of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, is called the forbidden chapter. It is never read. It is never read in a synagogue. They just, they just go over it. Uh, so, from the Mishnah and Gemara, the rabbis develop four clear signs of Messiah. First, he could heal lepers, because they know from the Old Testament that only God can heal lepers. Two, 
Only God could give sight to a man who was born blind. Not a man who was blinded by an accident, but born blind. Third, only God could cast out demons from a man who was both deaf and mute. And then finally, only God could raise a person from, the, from death after four days. Four days is critical because by then the body has clear, clearly begun to uh, decompose, especially in the heat and dryness of Israel. So let's look at these four characteristics or four signs of the Messiah in the life of Jesus. We know, first of all, that Jesus healed lepers. From Luke 17, verses 12 through 19, we read the following. And as he entered into a village, there met him 10 men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, listen to that. So he gave, they had to act, and then the miracle appeared. This is the way of the Christian life. The miracle did, the act of faith preceded the miracle. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at his feet, uh, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, arise, go thy way, Thy faith hath made thee whole. So that's the first sign from the Gemara in the Jewish oral tradition. The second sign was the Messiah must give sight to a man born blind. We find this in John 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind, who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now, 
it is fascinating to read the story. So I'm going to go on a little bit more about the reaction of the Pharisees when they learned what Jesus had done. Then again, the Pharisees asked the man who was had been blind how he had received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and I do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, what do you say of him? That he has opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. And they asked the parents saying to them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind. But what, by what means he sees now, we don't know. He's, asked, he's old enough, ask him. He can speak for himself. These words spake the parents because they feared the Jews, meaning the Pharisees and the leadership. For the Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again, called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. The blind man answered and said, whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he do to thee? How open are your eyes? And he answered them, I have already told you and you did not hear. Why are you asking again? Do you want to become his disciples? And at this point, they blew up. It says, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he comes. And the man answered and said to them, now listen, why? This is a marvelous thing that you know not from where he has come, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he hears. Since the world began, it was never heard that any man opened the eyes of one born blind. So that's the second sign of his messiahship. The first, he healed lepers. The second, he restored sight. He gave sight to a man born blind. And now the third, he cast out deaf and dumb demons. You know from reading 
the New Testament that Pharisees and priests did cast out demons. But they had to question the victim first to determine what kind of demon so they could address the demon and exorcise him. Therefore, no one had ever cast out a demon from a deaf mute because he could not be questioned, nor could he answer. Now Mark 9, beginning at verse 1. And when Jesus came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straight away, all the people, uh, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked, the, he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son who has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he, he taketh him, he tears him apart and he foams and gnashes his teeth and pines away. And I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit and said unto him, Thou deaf and dumb spirit. You hear that? Thou deaf and dumb spirit. I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So that's the third of four. He cleansed lepers, gave sight to a man born blind, and he cleansed lepers. And the Jews know from uh, Exodus, only God can do that. The last one was raising someone who had been dead four days. Now. The story here is in John 11. And you may recall, now I just want to take a, a, a short digression. All the detail in the Bible is there for a reason. There is no extraneous word. So when it says a deaf and dumb spirit, that is very significant because it's challenging what was in the Gemara. It was saying, here is the badge of Messiah. Now here's another example. The truth is in the detail. The disciples tell Jesus, Lazarus whom you love is very ill, even unto death. Now, you would expect Jesus to drop everything and say, let's get there right away. But he did not. He stayed where he was with his disciples for several days. By the time he reaches Lazarus' home, Lazarus has been dead how many days? Four days. And Martha runs at him and, and, and says, Oh Lord, if you had been here, our brother would have not died, would not have died. 
He goes in the town and Mary says the same thing. Oh, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother, our brother would not have died. And Jesus said, well, take me to him. Take me to him. And so I'm going to read from John 11, verses 38 through 40. Jesus has gone to the cave in which Lazarus has been buried for four days. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus saith unto him, said I not unto thee, that if you believe, you would see the glory of God. They rolled away the stone. He said, Lazarus came forth, and he came out, and Jesus said, loose him and let him go. At this point, the Pharisees determined that they had no choice but to kill Jesus. Because this fraud had clearly performed each of the four signs of messiahship. How could he be messiah not having come from their ranks? They didn't know him. He wasn't famous. He didn't come from esteemed family. Not only that, his mother had a son under embarrassing circumstances at the best because she and Joseph were not married and yet she was pregnant and the penalty for pregnancy before the actual marriage was death. But you remember said, Joseph said he didn't want to put her to shame. He was going to set her away privately, divorce her quietly. And the angel came and said, don't do that. She's pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit. So all her life, Mary was looked at as a disgraced woman. So how could such a family be the mother and father of the Messiah? It's just unconscionable to the Pharisees. So the next thing I want to talk about is that Jesus is fully God. So I'm going to just cite a couple of verses. Um, because there's so much you can say from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue 
should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, you say, well, when will they say that? Well, when they stand before the great judgment seat of God, both the saved and the unsaved, not a single one will be able to deny that Jesus is fully God. Believers will say it with great joy. And unbelievers will say it with great horror, but they will all say it. Colossians 1 verse 12 through 20 says, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, and whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invincible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him, Jesus, for by him, all things were created, things that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And then very quickly in John 2, I mean, Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Jesus dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I'm going to go past other verses just for the sake of time. So Jesus is fully God, and some of his other divine characteristics are well known. I'm just going to give three of them. One, he forgave sin. You remember uh, the sin, uh, the scene when a lame man is dropped down through a roof, and his friend says, "Lord, he's just—he's paralyzed. He can't walk. Please heal him." And with the Pharisees looking on, Jesus said, "Son, your sins are forgiven." And the Pharisees went ballistic because they know that only God can forgive sins. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, he asked them a question, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because if you say rise up, take your bed and walk, they've got to see that. That's visible, that's tangible. So because of their hardness of the heart, he turned to the man and said, okay, take up your bed and walk. And the paralyzed man 
was able to pick up his bed and walk, and the people praised him. The God who makes the lame walk is the God who forgives sin. Next, he knew the thoughts and intentions of men. Matthew 12, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts. Last, Jesus controlled nature. You know the scene from Matthew 8. When he went into a ship, his disciples followed him, and behold, there came a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, We're, we perish. And he said unto them, why are you so frightened? O ye of little faith. Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So that's just a demonstration that Jesus is, we've already done, that he meets all the criteria of Messiah from the Gemara. We've demonstrated that he is fully God. Now I want to talk about him being fully man. A.W. Tozer, who was the pastor of the at the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, 50 years ago, at least, wrote this. The teaching of the New Testament is that now, at this very moment, there is a man in heaven appearing in the presence of God for us. He is as certainly a man as was Adam or Moses or Paul. He is a man glorified, but his glorification did not dehumanize him. Today, he is a real man of the race of mankind bearing our lineaments and dimensions, a visible and audible man whom any other man would recognize instantly as one of us. So here's this passage. I read a little bit of it, but I want to read it again from Philippians chapter two, beginning at verse eight. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, the word that it, he thought it was not robbery to be equal with God. That word in the Greek is refers to when you zealously hold on to something. And if Jesus had zealously held on to his Godhead and did not become man, if he did not submit to the cross and the scourging and all of that, if 
If he had zealously held on to it, you and I would have no hope. We would die as sinners. But rather than hold on to that, he released it. Why? So that you and I could be saved through his death and resurrection. Next, Jesus was impeccable. That means he was completely without sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read this passage. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that Jesus was sinless is proven by the five trials he underwent before his crucifixion. The Sanhedrin did not convict Jesus of anything except being God. They brought in false witnesses to testify and all of their stories contradicted and made no sense. And they were desperate to convict him but they couldn't convict him of any wrongdoing. They couldn't find anything he had done wrong. Now, at one point, the uh, high priest said, well, you know, so frustrated that all his witnesses were collapsing, said, I adjure you, I adjure you in the name of God, tell us whether you are the Christ. And an adjuration in the Old Testament compelled the person being questioned to answer. We don't have that in our country because we have the Fifth Amendment against incriminating yourself. But Jesus obeyed the law to the letter. And so when the high priest adjured him to answer, Jesus said, yes, I am. So he went before the Sanhedrin the first time and was found, first he went to Caiaphas and Ananias, and then they called the full Sanhedrin. And they found nothing wrong with him um, until he said, yes, I am the Christ. And then they tore their clothes and said, we don't need any more witnesses. We got a confession. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. So they take him uh, to Pilate. Um, and and it said, and Pilate, and this is from Luke 23, and Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, you have brought this man to me uh, as one that uh, perverts the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, and I found no fault in this man touching those things that you accuse him of. And so what does he do? So we got. Caiaphas and Ananias, we have the full Sanhedrin, we have Pilate. And so uh, Pilate sends him to Herod. And Herod questions Jesus, and Jesus does not lower himself to even speak to Herod. He, he regards Herod as such a dog, he won't even speak to him. And Herod is just hoping that this guy will, will do some, you know, Matthew Blaine, magic, you know, Jesus won't even speak to him. So Herod, after having examined him and seeing no basis for anything, sends him back to Herod, and there's another examination. 
All of this is, oh, and then Pilate's wife, the second time Jesus appears in front of him, knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and Pilate knew it. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. And unfortunately for Pilate, he dismissed what she said. So, um, and, and then Jesus is crucified. And one of the thieves on the cross knew Jesus was innocent. From Luke 23. And they both started out just railing against Jesus like every other passerby, calling him names, all this stuff. But one of them just kept watching Jesus. And it said, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? Seeing you are in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And when he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we've got an examination by Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate twice, and Herod. Now he's examined by the uh, uh, the two thieves on the cross. And he's also um, examined by the hardened Roman soldiers. They came to conclude that Jesus was without sin. Now these are hardened soldiers. They've done crucifixions before. We know that they're hardened because there are three men in agony right near them and they're playing cards or dice. I mean, how can you do that? Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Hmm. The reason that is significant, oh, in this verse, Matthew 27, 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. What did Jesus cry with a loud voice? We know from the text he cried out in John 19, it is finished. The, the definition of the phrase cried with a loud voice includes a war cry. Gentlemen, I was watching um, the Patriots play football, I think it was two weeks ago, and Cam Newton, their new quarterback, scored his first running touchdown as a Patriot. And he gave a war cry when he crossed that line. Jesus' cry was not one of weakness and defeat. It was the war cry that you give when you are victorious over an enemy. These soldiers 
had heard war cries and probably emitted war cries themselves. When they go into a battle and they're fighting to stay alive and they finally conquer the enemy and they look around and they realize they've survived another battle. They won a conclusive battle. They won. It's a victory. And they just give a war cry. He knew what it was like. And that's why he said, Sergio, this man was righteous. So other human characteristics of Jesus. He could be weary, he slept, he hungered, he was battered and bruised, he bled, he suffered physically, and he died. Now the next point, Jesus fulfilled God's promises to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Jesus himself in his person is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Just not that he feels in his person, he is the fulfillment. Not that he brings about the fulfillment, he is the fulfillment. Um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, for the promises of God in Jesus are yea, and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Jesus fulfilled all of God's promises to the Jews. In Romans 15, verse 8, Paul writes, Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, which is just a way of saying the Jews for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to their fathers. But Jesus fulfilled also all of God's promises to the Gentiles. Romans 15, verse eight. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. The Gentile is simply everybody who's not a Jew. That was the word, Gentiles and Jews. Jesus cast out the demon from the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. She is the one who said, Lord, help me. And he said, well, you don't throw... Uh, you don't throw crumbs uh, away. And she said, yeah, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. A Syrophoenician woman is rather hated in Hebrew society. And Jesus, her longing to have a relationship with God is satisfied through Jesus Christ. Jesus healed the centurion servant. And here's a passage that you might overlook. Remember, truth in the details. 
in John 12, um, verse 20 through 32 is a very telling story before um, all breaks loose in Jerusalem. The disciples come to Jesus, or a couple of the disciples, and say, there are Greeks looking for you. Now, Jesus had been looking for them father for the time when he needed to submit himself to the authorities, to the authority of the Romans and the Sanhedrin to be crucified. He didn't hasten the time, and he didn't slow the time. The timing was in the Father's hands. And when they told him that the Greeks had come looking, okay, I, I can I can hear you. And I got a screen back up, Trevor. Um, huh. uh, I, I can't see you, Trevor, but I can hear you. Okay. Okay. So the so when the Greeks come seek the Greeks come seeking Jesus, he knows that it's time for him to now go into Jerusalem to be crucified. And so he says to his disciples, it, it doesn't seem to fit. He said, they say, hey, some Greeks are looking for you. And he looks at, he pauses and he looks at his disciples and he says, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Because here the Greeks, the Gentiles, are seeking him. And that is what the farmer, the father promised, that the Gentiles would seek and God would receive them. Now, God has a plan for the universe. And that plan is that God will save Jews and Gentiles alike through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for the plan. Jesus is the execu executor of the plan. And Jesus is the object of the plan. Um, wow, I just have way too much material. Um, so next point. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip to an, I'm gonna skip this part. And I want to talk about quickly the divine and unique duality of Jesus Christ. We use the word unique incorrectly in our culture today. If something is special, we call it unique. Unique means there's only one. There's not two, there's only one. And Jesus is unique. There's only one. Um, so the divine and unique duality of Jesus Christ because he combines in himself qualities that are normally mutually exclusive or repugnant. Jesus is the ancient of days and the babe born in a manger. Um, John Donne, a famous English poet, wrote a poem about the nativity and described Jesus's birth this way. Immensity, 
cloistered in thy dear womb. So he is ancient of days and a newborn babe. He is the lion and he is the lamb. Um, he is the great high priest and he is the sacrifice. We know from Hebrews 4 that he is our high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. As the Old Testament foretold, Christ is our sacrifice. I mean, the importance of the five trials that Jesus underwent is that the person with the sacrifice had to come to the priest who would examine it to make sure there was no blemish. If the animal had no blemish, it could be sacrificed. If the animal was blemished, it did not qualify. The five trials proved that Jesus was the lamb without blemish. Jesus is king and he is the suffering servant. Jesus is majestic and he is lowly. He is the balm of Gilead and he is the afflicted one by whose stripes we are healed. He is the word of God. And he is the silent prisoner. He is the wrath of God. And he is the love of God. I'm trying to flip quickly. Um, Jesus had dominion over all creation and yet submitted to the Father and to man. Just think of that. The tree that Jesus called into being was a tree of his crucifixion. The man who lived and breathed because of his might and power nailed him to the cross beat him mercilessly. And he has dominion over all things. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I have to stop this. Uh, it's uh, 45 minutes to the hour. So I'm going to stop. I like to respect the time of the organizers and Trevor, I'm at your disposal. Bill, I, I don't think anyone has any questions, so I think you're off the hook for the rest of the evening. That was awesome. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks, Bill.